so just to kind of start off, I, I have a... Um, I have the greatest truck. It's a 94 F-150. I love my truck. Um, it's all mechanical. There's not any power windows or power door or any of that fancy stuff. Because if you got the fancy stuff, it just breaks and then you can't fix it. So mine's, mine's nice. It's just a bare bones truck. That's the way I like it. That's the way it's always going to be. Um, so with that being said, um, about six months ago, I noticed there was this clunking going on when I was going down the highway, especially if I got up to higher speeds, there was this clunking that was happening. And, and then when I hit the brakes, which brakes are important, I guess, uh, the, the truck would start to really shudder. And I wasn't quite sure. So I talked to some of our buddies here that know things about this. And we did some of the basic stuff. And, and uh, that only slightly mediated the problem. Uh, and and we've, we ended up finding out that the, the real problem was on my axle, I've got this independent suspension. I don't want to get too technical because I really don't understand how it all works anyway. But there's two components on this axle. Um, they're the same little part. It's called an axle pivot bushing. These two bushings that are on my axle. And they're cheap parts. They're like $30 parts. And a bushing is simply uh, a, a fitting or a bushing that goes between two pieces of metal to keep the metal from rubbing on each other and, and wearing out. Well, the thing about these axle pivot bushings, they're only 30 bucks, they're cheap and they're easy, um, and they're important to the truck, but when they start to go out, what happens is that the truck will start to rattle, and um, if you don't um, take care of that, if, if you neglect those axle pivot bushings and you don't replace them when the time is right, what ends up happening is other components that were just fine, those components ball joints and tie rods and knee flexors and flux capacitors and whatever else is inside the truck, um, those things start to go out. And then before you know, you just got to get rid of the truck, which I'm not going to do. So um, these, these two components were, were, were going out. And so we replaced those components. And now all of a sudden, the, church, the, the truck runs much, much better. And, and these two components are really important. Now, when we look at today, when we come to our text today, you wonder, I'm in Yakult, so I can make this correlation because it does fit um, between the axle pivot bushings and our text today. We're just covering three verses today. And really what Paul's getting at here is within the life of a, a church, especially a church that's going to be healthy, which is what this whole series is all about. It's about the church being healthy. What does it look like to have a healthy church? The book of Timothy, this letter that was written from Paul to Timothy, is instructions on, on how to, to evaluate, how to correct any, any um, lack of health or unhealth within a church. And so we come here to this point, and he gives us really two axle pivot bushings. He's like, there's these two things that are, are central to the, the life of a church, and if these two things... Um, are not functioning well, if they're neglected, if they're not taken care of, if they just start to disintegrate, then the whole, the whole church organism, as God created it, begins to rattle and get out of place. And so he just spends these three verses um, helping us see what those two things are and how important they are to the life of the church. Now, up until this point, what we've done, we've realized that, that Paul writes this letter to Tim, and he writes the letter because the church has grown in Ephesus, and while it's growing, it's, it's experiencing growing pains. And one of, the, one of the most significant things that was happening in the church was there was false doctrine that was coming in. So these false teachers are coming in, and they're, they're really disrupting the, the health and the order of the, of the church as it was supposed to be. And so Paul writes this letter, and he, he says first off in chapter 1, he basically says, when the church is sick, the very first thing you do um, is you, you pray. Um, you pray for the church, and it's important that you pray. It's important you pray because 
for you, Tim, as a leader, if you're going to address these issues of false doctrine and you're going to correct the errors in the church, you need to have a heart that is motivated by a sincere and pure love for other people. So you have to have this sincere and pure love for the people that you're going to be you're going to be dealing with in this difficult situation. So you have this love, and, and, and Tim, you have to also, you have to address the church in such a way that you remind the church what the church is about. Because apparently in this church, there was a bunch of ladies that were coming in, and they were all dressed up and adorned. They would walk in the church, and everyone would, you know, they would turn their heads, and they would look at these ladies because they're all blizzy and blazy and blingy and all those things. And so, so Paul says to Timothy, remind, remind the women that it's not about them, it's about God. Um, and remind them their identity doesn't come from the way that they look. Their identity doesn't come from the way that people perceive them. Their identity comes from the beauty of which they were created in the image and the likeness of God. Remind them of that. And hey, by, while, while we're talking about women, let's talk about men. Men, men as God designed, are, are, are called to step up and to lead. They're to lead through prayer. They're to have a spiritual influence in the life of the, their family and the life of the church Let's have men step up. So he starts, to, starts this process, and then he goes to the next step, which is dealing with the, the leadership structure of the church. We spent the last few weeks on that, talking about elders and talking about deacons. And so now he's kind of laid all of that in the first two chapters, and in the early part of chapter three, and then he comes to these verses that I'm going to read here, and it's not up there. So, oh, there it is, conduct and con- confession, but let's just read our, our text. So it starts in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we're going to be in verse 14 to start out. And it says this. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself, herself, in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Let's pray. Father, I just uh, thank you for the beautiful day, and I thank you for the gift of being able to come together and worship with um, your church, my brothers and sisters here. We thank you for the, the freedom that we have to do that. We thank you for the place that we have to assemble and do that. And um, we, we thank you for just the gift of the beauty of this, this time of year. Thank you for bringing us here safe. Uh, Lord, we, we pray as we turn to your word and we look at these two, these two key components to the health and life of not just the church in Ephesus, but our church. Um, we pray that you would speak to our hearts, um, both individually as well as, as uh, one church here, your church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look here, what are these pivot points? What are these two components that really, if they're not working together, um, things are out of whack? And, and that's the, the first one is that our, our conduct, Paul is saying here, our conduct is chained to our, our relationships. Uh, our conduct is chained to our relationships, um, and it's just a basic principle we see all in life. Healthy relationships equal healthy conduct. Unhealthy relationships equal unhealthy conduct. Corinthians 15 says... Don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. And so Paul here, he brings up three key relationships in this first verse, verses four, first few verses, verses 14 and 15. And the first key relationship that he, he brings up is how important it is to, to take care of our relationships within the church family, within the church family. Look here at verse 14. It says this, I'm writing these things to you 
hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you would know how one ought to conduct himself within the household of God. So Paul refers here to the household of God. He's saying this is a faith family. He's saying we are a faith family. Small, big, um, sanctuary, chapel, um, together in this building, together in another building, another day. Um, we are a family. We are the family of God. We are the household of God. And the fact that Paul um, brought this up and used this language, the household of God, has profound implications. And first, first off, the implication is um, that it means that we are with each other, the people that you are around right now, we are in eternal relationships with one another. We can get caught up in the world, in the physical world that we live in, but the truth is that we are living eternally together with one another. Now, the problem with that is, if some of you don't get along and you don't like one another, um, that the idea of eternal implications can be somewhat burdensome. Um, I know there's no one in here like that, but if there was, that would be a burden. But the truth be told with this particular passage and the happy news is that in heaven, um, relationships will be perfect, they will be redeemed, there won't be these issues that, that come up. So now the, the question would become, like, how does how does a church family stay in this healthy place? Um, in part, they, they are able to remain focused on the truth that they are the family of God, that we are God's family. That's one of the things. A.W. Tozer speaking about this, one of my favorite writers, he's speaking about this, and this is how he describes this, this whole issue of staying healthy as, uh, as a church family. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same tuning fork are automatically tuned together? They are of one accord being tuned, not to each other, but they're tuned to another standard to which one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be if they were to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship with one another. He's saying a lot there, but simply put, what he's saying is, um, oftentimes when there's problems within the household, we want to try to force unity to take place. You want to pull people together and get people to, to sit down and deal with their issues. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, that happens sometimes. But what, what Tozer's saying and what we see here in the family of God, the household of God, is that, that if we want to right our relationships with one another, our focus doesn't really become one another. Our focus and our goal isn't to become unified. Our focus and our goal is to be fixed on the tuning fork, which is Christ. It's a, it's a group of people here in this room that look to Christ and to Christ first. And as we look to Christ, that harmonizes all of our relationships. And so it's, it's important to note this because we are on the same team, we are bought by the same blood, and we're led by the same Savior. The Savior who is the one that brings unity in the church and brings health and life into the family of God. And one of the great, greatest exercises for you, and I've done this actually with many of you that are in this room, not many, but certain situations in this room where when conflict arises and there's two people at odds, my go-to process for that is to sit down and to have every person that's in the room, whether it's three or 15, um, to open their Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. So Noah, you picked that Colossians 3 as the opening to our worship. I didn't even know you picked that. That's awesome because that's what um, 
I will do in situations like this, and we'll open up to Colossians chapter 3, and we'll read verses 1 through 17. And I, I can say, honestly, there's times where um, we've reread that in reconciliatory situations up to five, six, seven times out loud with one another. Because ultimately, you cannot read those, that passage, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. You cannot read it and not set your mind on Christ and still walk in bitterness towards one another, in disobedience with one another. And so it's a great exercise for us when we are out of alignment, when things are rattling relationally, we don't force and try to to put a fix on our relationship. We look at Christ. We remember Christ. We remember what Christ has done, what he did. We set our mind on things above and we clothe ourselves in, in humility. And we know this is also an issue that Paul had to deal with a lot because one of the favorite passages that I'll use for a wedding is Philippians chapter 2. Such a perfect wedding passage and it says it says this, therefore therefore If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if there's any affection, any compassion, (laughs) make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Paul calls us the household of God. If we are going to conduct ourselves like the household of God, we have to to mind our relationships within the church family and and seek Christ in his heart, his mind, in order to walk faithfully in that. A quote I came across this week from a pastor named Kerry Newhoff. He said, the kingdom of me, the kingdom of me is a sad kingdom. It's one that leaves me feeling empty and sad. The kingdom of me is a sad kingdom, one that leaves me empty and sad. And it does because that's just not the way that God made us to operate. He made us to operate in his kingdom. And in his kingdom, we empty ourselves of ourselves as we pursue healthy relationships within the household of God. So, And I just want to say, this always happens. If I do an illustration like this, people will come up to me and, and say, I didn't realize that that was situation, you even knew about that situation. I'm not thinking of one specific situation of anyone. I'm just thinking of naturally in, in life and in church, as we walk together and as we grow together, there's going to be growing pains. And we just have to make sure we're anchored in Christ as we pursue those relationships. The second relationship that he brings up here, it's very closely tied and very important as well, is, is this, a relationship with the living God. How ought one to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God? How, how are we to do that? How we are in the church of the living God. So he's writing this book. He's writing this book so that we would know how to behave, so that we would know how to act in church. How we, and, and church isn't just in the building. Church is when we're together. It could be growth group, Bible study. It could be in community, out in community. How does the church conduct itself? Well, the relationship with the living God is a very important component to this. And I think it's important that he says this because he's not saying that we're a family of the dead God. We're not the family of a distant God. We're not the family of an uninterested God. 
We're not the family of a, a spiritual God that just is unattainable or unable to understand. We are the family of the, the living God. And many people today, many people today claim because they're American, they claim Christian faith. They, they claim they're followers of Jesus and they're part of, of the church universal. But when we look at this, we, we see that there's just, there's not, it's not possible to be part of the family of God and not be part of the family of God. We can't call ourselves followers of Christ and not be part and committed to a church family, a gathering together of believers. And I was out in the community. One of you asked me to visit a, a family member or a friend. It was a friend. And uh, so I went to visit this couple. And as I was meeting with them and they're going through their thing, we, the, the, the conversation turns towards church, turns towards the Lord. And, and I'm just thinking, man, these people, they just need you. That's what I'm thinking. They just need you in their lives because you're awesome. And, and they're kind of isolated. They're kind of alone. And their, their comment to me was, you know what? Um, we, we love Jesus. We're all about Jesus. We believe all things about Jesus, um, but we just don't believe in church. Um, we, no church is perfect. Um, there's no, and, and, and we don't want to go to something like that. And, and I passed on to them something that I got from, from my pastor when I was a youth pastor. And he, he said, if you find the perfect church, don't go there because you'll mess it up. That's what he used to always say. So true. Um, there isn't a perfect church. We're, we're a group of imperfect people, kind of like a stained glass window that comes together. When we come together um, under the household of God, focused on Christ, letting the light of Christ shine through our broken pieces, it, it turns into something beautiful. We're broken people that come together. And by God's grace, he, he grows us and, he, and, and we're like a garden. There's times where things need to be plucked. There's times where things need to be pruned, but we're growing. And, and we need the, the one another because we are the church of the living God. It's, it's imperative to our, our faith. So listening to God's word, listening to the preaching of God's word, listening to, to worship music alone, yeah, that's a great thing, and we all do that, I would think. Um, but it's not enough in itself. Because when we come together, when we sing together, when we listen to God's word together, when we fellowship with one another, um, when we, we educate our children together, that is when the family of the living God really comes alive. And that's why God's word is so adamant about the, the gathering together of his people. And it says in Hebrews 10, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like the day is drawing near. The more and more we look at the trends of our culture, it seems that way. We need one another. So now, without um, this living, healthy, vibrant relationship as a church with the Lord, there is a trend that seems to appear in either the life of individuals. Sometimes it happens in the life of individuals, and sometimes it happens in the life of church. Sometimes, normally, it's, it's both of those things together. But when there's not a, a healthy, vibrant relationship with one another, it tends towards, it tends towards one of two things. The first one, it tends towards the, the direction of legalism. Now, we went through Galatians a few years ago. We spent pretty much the whole series talking about these two things. If I could surmise it just in a moment. Legalism is the focus of having right behavior. Behavior is right, but belief is wrong. People that are legalistic, they kind of distill and they define their walk with God down to a whole bunch of rules. 
Do this, don't do that. That is, that is the summation of their relationship with God. What they tend to do is they look at the letter of the law and they miss the spirit of the law. They forget that God gave the law, gave the Bible, gave those rules to people in the context of a covenant relationship. A covenant relationship that was solely intended on on nurturing a, a loving heart towards him, a worshipful heart towards him, and a loving heart towards one another. And, and they, they lose sight of that. So legalists, they can appear, because they act right, they can appear righteous and spiritual, but ultimately they fail to accomplish God's purposes um, because it's all outward performance-based and not about inward grace. It's not about inward inward change. If you'd like, just kind of a side note, if you want to go deeper with this in your own study this week, you can look at some of the key chapters, Romans chapter 14, as well as Galatians chapter 3 will help you kind of do a little more in-depth study on, on legalism and its, its problems and its cures. Um, the next one, if it's not legalism, that's kind of one extreme, it can be the next extreme, which is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. So this is the right belief. Notice legalism is the right behavior with the wrong belief. Hypocrisy is the right belief with the wrong behavior. So the Apostle Peter, there's an example of this with the Apostle Peter. We could talk about the Pharisees, but um, um, you know, we don't really identify with the Pharisees. We can identify with Peter. Um, Peter, he believed the right things, but he behaved wrongly in a certain situation. And he believed the gospel. He believed that, that people, whether they were a Jew or a Gentile, male or female, slave or free, he believed that all people have the same freedom and access to God through the work of Jesus Christ. If a person places their faith in Christ and in Christ alone, uh, Peter would believe that all of those people are righteous before God. He knew the gospel. He believed the gospel. But what he didn't do was he didn't act it out. He knew these things, but he wasn't associating with the other side of the aisle. He didn't associate with the, the dirty Gentile people, the people that hadn't been circumcised, the people who did or didn't eat the same foods and did or didn't observe the same customs as he did. And so what happened was Paul, the Apostle Paul, calls him out and rebukes him for, for his, his, um, his hypocrisy in this. And, and again, if you want to read more about this, you can read Galatians chapter 2. But these are kind of the, the tens. Um, maybe the middle ground, I don't have this in your notes, but maybe the middle ground would be the, the area of cynicism. And I don't know if you um, see yourself as cynical, but um, one of the things that I've, I've learned through life is that cynicism never finds a home in a healthy heart. Someone is finding things to pick at within the church, pick at the way that they raise kids or pick at the way that they do their devotions or pick at the way that they worship or pick at the way, pick at the different ways. And they're just kind of like, you know, just that, that, just that never happy, always cynical. There's always something else. Um, cynicism never finds home in a healthy heart, nor does legalism, nor does hypocrisy. And you can maybe balance this with faith. Faith would be right belief with right behavior. These things kind of go hand in hand. Thirdly, now let's move on to the the third relationship. We've talked about the relationship amongst the household of God with the living God. And now more of the central focus of our passage is this third one, (coughs) and it's this. It's our relationship with the truth. Our relationship with the truth. I'm writing these things to you. I'm writing these things to you hoping 
to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of truth. The pillar and the support of truth. This imagery of pillars and foundations, um, this would not have been lost on the Ephesians church, the church in Ephesus there. And the reason why is because there was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world in Ephesus. It is the temple to the, the goddess Diana. It's this temple. Here's a picture of it. Oh, actually, it's a remake of it. But that's, that's the temple. That temple of Diana, this had 127 solid marble pillars. Each of those 20, 127 pillars was a gift from um, a king. And it, was a, and it was a way to um, kind of self-promote as well as to honor these kings that gave this. These pillars were, in many cases, especially inside the structure, had jewels and marbles pressed into them. And some of them were wrapped in pure gold all the way around those things. So these pillars were, were there not just as a tribute to the king, but their primary purpose as pillars, was to hold up that massive stone, heavy-duty roof. That was why the pillars were there. If the roof, if it was an open-aired one, they wouldn't have the pillars. Um, they were there for specifically to hold this up. And so what we see here is that with this temple that is to the goddess of Diana, it was a, it was a picture or a representation of the false re pagan religions that a lot of people worshipped. But the, the, the true church, the church that, uh, of the living God, is the one in which it has a different purpose. We'll talk about that as we move on. So the next word there, after pillar, in your Bibles, it could be one of probably four or five words. It's either the word support, foundation, buttress, ground. But the basic idea here in the metaphor in which Paul is using is that the church is the foundation. It is the pillar for the truth. It holds up the truth. It is the purpose of the truth. So what truth is he talking about? The first part of verse 16 tells us, as well as the context back in verses 8 through 13 when we talked last week about the mystery of the gospel. We talked about the, the mystery of godliness. Simply put, the, the truth is the revelation of God which is comprised in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That truth is what is to be held up. That truth is what we have most of us in our laps with our Bibles or, or on our devices. That is the truth of the revealed word of God. And so for the sinner, that truth is the sacred treasure that offers them forgiveness for sin. For the believer, that truth is the sacred treasure that offers sanctification, growth, spiritual growth, that offers edification so that we might live for the glory of God. So this is a real sober reality for any church. Any and every church has to solidly and immovably, unshakably hold up God's revealed word. The church's intent is not to alter it. It's not to change it. It's not to dress it up. It's not to dress it down. It's not to tweak it in any way, shape, or form. The church, us, the church of the living God, the household of the living God, is to be the pillar and the foundation of the scriptures, stewarding it well, not misrepresenting it, not depreciating it, not demoting it, not devaluing it, not allowing it to become second in any way, shape, or form within its church. 
Because when that happens, and it happens all of the time, we have churches all over our county that have allowed this to slip. And what happens when it slips, when the church is no longer the pillar and the foundation of truth, there's no, it's nothing more than just a social club. It might draw lots of people. Uh, it, it might seem good from the outside. But if it's not the pillar and the foundation of God's revealed truth, it's an empty shell. It's an empty shell, and it has no true purpose. And I don't even know why you would waste time if you're not going to be part of being the pillar and the foundation of truth. And it's a high call. It's a high call, and it's a great call, and it's a fun call when we do it because it provides so many things. It provides clarity, and it provides purpose, and, 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 and all of these things. So how do, how do believers hold up the truth? There's a, a few, few ways here listed if you're taking notes. Just some suggestions. This isn't exhaustive, but here's one. How do we hold up the truth? Simply put, we believe it. That's a good first start. We, we believe that, that those who trust in Jesus will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your faith in Christ Jesus and you will be saved. We, we believe in Jesus. We don't believe in our own strength. We don't believe in our own ability to earn our way to heaven by doing good stuff. I mean, that's not how it works. We could never be good enough, not in a million lifetimes. Christ is good enough, so we believe the gospel. And when we believe the gospel, it's funny. It's funny how that changes us, how that makes us more and more like the image of Christ when we believe it. Secondly, we memorize it. Thy word I've hidden in my heart so that I might not sin against thee. We memorize the word of God. So often we can um, remember and memorize our taglines of our favorite candy bar or our favorite you know, product, but uh, we have reasons for not memorizing the scriptures. And we'll use excuses like, well, I'm older, and it's hard for old people to memorize things. That, that's fine. Just memorize shorter verses if that's the case, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Anyway, so um, memorize it. Um, meditate on it. Meditate on it. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you should meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. This is, this is a really tough one, especially with the needle that the culture puts in our arm, the needle of technology, the needle of constant influence, constant, um, constant engagement. By far, the most difficult day of the week for me begins Friday morning. It's because I have no phone Friday. Um, Thursday afternoon, evening, I turn my phone off and I don't turn it on until Saturday morning. And I, I, I almost get the shakes um, Saturday morning, um, be, partly because I have this complex that I'm more important than I really am. And I feel like I have to reply to people's messages and it's just not the case. What I find is come Saturday morning when I turn my phone on, um, things are just fine. <laughs> um, but it's hard to, to turn that off. And, and I think it is a real trick of our enemy, to get us so engaged in technology that it always has to be with us and we, we have to reply to things quickly and, and be constantly engaged in things and it really erodes at our ability to, to be still, the Psalms 46, 10 things, to be still and know that God is God, it, it erodes at us. And so um, if we're going to be the pillars and the foundations of truth, we, we have to be able to, to sit down and let the, the beauty and the truth of 
the gospel and of God's word, his revealed word to us, um, percolate through the noise of our lives. It's just imperative to do that in our life. We have to meditate on it. Um, four, um, study it. Awana, they, every week, our Awana kids, they study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Studying the word of God. Fifthly, obey it, live it. Luke eleven twenty eight. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it, obey it, live it. It doesn't do any good, really, very little good, to hear, the God, hear God's word, to hear the truth, to memorize the truth, to meditate on the truth, to study the truth, but then to do nothing about it. It's like James says, it's like looking in the mirror and seeing a blemish and doing nothing about it. Uh, one, of my, one of my friends early on, uh, when, when I started to talk about the fact that I was going to be uh, preaching, um, he, he challenged me. He goes, with your preaching, avoid the, the temptation of most preachers to, to just convey content and information that, that um, excites the people that like to stay in their heads. Because the majority of people only apply maybe 10% of the truth about God that they really know. Uh, so it's not, that, it's not that more information and more education and more, more great quotes are important. They are. But the reality is we have what we need to impact this world radically for Christ. We just have to do it. We just have to get out there and do it. And, and it is happening. I'm not trying to, to, to kick us while we're down. Um, because I don't think we're down. I think we're doing good. But we need to continue that. Um, okay, so um, sixthly, to uphold the truth, we defend it. Paul says, um, appointed for, I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The truth today is, is being attacked radically. And it requires us as the family of God, the household of the living God, to protect the truth. Um, good example, we will protect the things that we value most. Hunting this last year, I was chasing an elk. And it was going, and I went to cross a creek. I lost sight of it, and I wanted to see if I could make around a ridge. I go through the creek, and I went a little too quickly. And my feet, what's funny, what you can, what you can process when you're horizontal through the creek in the air. And I was up in the air, and I remember thinking... I'm going to get wet. I'm going to fall down. One of two th- I can do one of two things. I can brace myself this way or I can brace myself this way. This arm, I'd just gotten out of a cast, and it was still weak. And this arm had my bow. <laughs> what do you do? I remember vividly, pff, sacrifice the arm. The arm will heal. So I fall down <laughs> on the arm and hurt it. Because, you see, if, if, I, if I had used the bow, if I'd thrown the bow or if I'd used the bow to brace myself, then I have no weapon anymore. If I used the bow, I could hit my sight. And my, my whole hunt is off at that point. There's no point in going after that elk because I'd wound it or I'd flat out miss it, although I would have a good excuse. That might be a good reason why. But, you see, the point there is that the things that we value, we will protect. We will protect. The truth of the gospel is the highest value of anything that we possibly have. It's the highest value, and we will do whatever we can to protect it, to proclaim it, which is the seventh thing here. How do you uphold the truth? You don't only protect it, but you proclaim it. And we see this, finally, proclaiming it. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. This is what we do. I mean, our whole purpose here, and you hear it, our purpose is to equip us as a church, equip us to reach with the gospel those that are near to us but far from Christ. Um, that is what our purpose and our mission is as a church, to, to so be radically impacted by the, the truth of the gospel that it has to, in essence, ooze out of us. It becomes a proclamation in which we live for every day. And if you're in a growth group or, or a small group or you have an accountability partner, the challenge this week is to go through one of these seven or come up with one of your own um, ways in which you can hold up and be a pillar and, and a foundation of the truth Pick one of these things as, as a group and hold each other accountable to it. Maybe you're saying, you know what, there's just someone that I just haven't connected with a long time and I just feel like I, I need to make those connections because that's going to be an a, a, a on-ramp to be able to love them with Jesus. And so maybe it's, you know, I, I want to have those conversations. Or maybe, you know what, I don't meditate very well. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's, uh, you know what, I, I could really benefit from a little more deeper study. Um, whatever the case might be, you can choose those things amongst you, you, your own life and your own accountability and, and pick one of those things. So, so, the, so the first component, the first axle pivot point is this conduct. And the second one, the second one is, um, is this. It is our confession is chained to our beliefs. So we've got the, the, the conduct and now we have the confession. The confession or the profession of this. Let me read here. It says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed amongst the nations, believed on in the world, and he's taken up in glory. So what Paul's doing here, um, he, he's just proclaimed that the church is the pillar and the foundation of truth. And then he naturally talks about the church being the ones that confess that very truth. We're to hold up the truth as the church. We're to be the pillar and the foundation of the truth, not inventing it or reinventing it. We're just to hold it up. That's our job. Um, and what are we doing? We have to confess that. So these, these six lines here, these um, are, are believed to have been what's called a creedal hymn. This was in the early church days when people gathered like we're gathering or gathered in homes. What they did was they would recite creeds that would remind them of the truths in which they believe. Some other faith traditions still do this today, and I think it's great as long as there's heart connected to those things. But this is a creedal hymn, and we kind of see three things here. I'm going to move through this pretty quickly. The revelation of Christ is the first thing here that we see. We see the revelation of Christ. This is Christ in the flesh. And this is in reference to his birth. It's in reference to the incarnation of Jesus. He's the eternal son. He's the architect. He's the judge of the universe who is without beginning. He is without end. Um, this is the initial revelation of Christ. Colossians 2.9 says this, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So in the flesh, and then vindicated in the spirit. This, this is a reference to a corresponding bookend of his earthly life, his resurrection. Just as Jesus was miraculously conceived, he was miraculously raised from the dead. It's the bookend of that. Jesus Messiah, that's 
the truth the church must always confess, the revelation of Christ at the beginning and at the end, and yet the day which is still to come. Next is we see the evidence of or the witness of Christ. There's this link between the, the supernatural and the, the natural in this, these next two lines. It's a scene by angels. In Scripture, we see angels see everything. They were oftentimes coupled with experiences that Jesus had. They foretold his birth to Mary and Joseph. They were at his temptation as they foretold. Um, or they were there to minister him at the end of his temptation. In the Garden of Gethsemane, they sweat blood. That's what took place there. Strengthened them. Um, the angels witnessed to him. They, the angels witnessed the resurrection and sat by his tomb. So seen by angels and then proclaimed among the nations. The whole realm of the intelligence saw the whole realm of intelligence saw him created. And this is what's interesting still to this day. I mean, here we are. Here we are lifting up the name of Jesus. Um, it was true back then. It's still true today. We're this witness to Christ here on earth. So you have this, this link between the natural and the supernatural. And then there's the reception of Christ. The reception of Christ. We, we see here that Christ is in two separate geographies. He's, he's in heaven and he's on earth. See, he's believed in the world. Many of us here today, we're here because we believed upon Christ in the world. We believed and we placed our faith in him. That's why we are here. We're, we're, being, we're being, putting ourselves within the family of God, learning and growing within relationship with one another. And then he's also taken up in glory, taken up in glory. So the big idea here, um, the, the main purpose of these two pivot points, if we were to pull these two things together... The idea here is that the more beautiful our belief about Christ, the more beautiful our belief about Christ, the more beautiful is our behavior as a church. The, the, more, the more real our, our, our view and our, our, our fixation upon the magnificent nature of Christ and the confession that we read about just here, the more beautiful it is that our conduct and our behavior will then follow with this. So if, if you want to live a life like Paul is talking, if we want to conduct ourselves in the household of God, the household of the living, living God with one another and with the world around us, we do this in such a, a way that emulates the beauty of who Christ is, of who he is. So we chain ourselves, we link ourselves inseparably to the grandness of Jesus. That's what we are about. As we just we go to close, I've already kind of mentioned some of the application points. Um, but there's three relationships here. The relationships with one another here. Um, there's the relationships with also the, the living God. And then there's the relationship with the truth. Is there one of these areas as you sit here and you think about this that, you know what, um, I need some calibration. Maybe, and when I replaced my axle pivot points, one of them was, was really perfect. The other one was totally blown out. And so um, I'd still replace both, both of them. But the, the point is, the point is that, yeah, we can be okay in one area, but the other area might really be needing help. And that other area might really be um, rattling pretty, pretty hard and, and kind of starting to, to etch away the foundations of other areas of, of our life and our faith. So where is it for you out of, these three, out of these three relationships? And then again, pick one of those seven ways, one of those seven ways that we are to, as the church, hold up to be the pillar and the foundation of truth. Pick one of those seven this week and be intentional about working on it and having accountability to work on it as well.